Well, here we are again, uh, just coming to this book of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and going through this story of, of just remembering how God had, had preserved his people. And, and just to kind of recap again, to get us where we are in the story right now, um, everything looked incredibly bleak just 70 years prior. They were, their, their Babylonians had come in, had already conquered them, but the Jewish people kept kind of revolting against the Babylonians, and finally, under Nebuchadnezzar, they came in and just said, enough already, and they, they, they took more exiles, they, they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people, um, tore down the, the city walls, tore down the temple, and in a sense, we're kind of saying, you know, never again, never again. This was like obliteration in, in really in the Babylonians' eyes. But as we know, God was using Babylon. He was using Babylon to judge his people. And something needed to take place, something drastic. You know, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, we, we kind of presume upon God. We presume that God's going to give us chance after chance after chance. After all, he's the God of grace. And I do believe he is the God of grace, and I do believe he gives us opportunity to return. But there's also this point when he's not saying it's over, but he does say it's no longer about tweaking here and there and getting, getting my people back on the right path. It's almost like God is pressing the reset button. Again, this isn't because God is, you know, just was surprised by our disobedience. It wasn't because he was surprised that we would make a promise and not keep it. But it's, but it's again, part of his plan, and yet in his plan, sometimes there is this reset. And that's what happens here. And 70 years pass, and the Babylonians who thought they were so high and mighty quickly are gone. And... Here are the Persians. And there's a particular king, Cyrus, known as Cyrus the Great. And he's the king at the right time. At the right time for God to enact his plan. So Cyrus allows the exiles to return. And they return. They immediately reinstitute worship. And remember, they're doing this in a city that has no walls. A city that lies in ruin. A city where other people had moved in to whatever could be lived in. And moved into the surrounding areas. And they didn't like make this altar in kind of a, you know, in a kind of a hideaway place where you couldn't see. No, they call it the Temple Mount for a reason. You might guess the reason. It's a mount. It's up high. They can see it. And so here on this, no, no walls around the city, build this altar. They're, they're doing sacrifices. They're reinstituting the sacrificial system, doing it day and night. People can see for miles around something's happening in Jerusalem. And there's this huge celebration in chapter 3. And then last week, what we looked at was we saw that huge celebration, almost immediate opposition. When God's people had returned, when God's people were truly worshiping, there's almost immediate opposition. And the opposition came in different forms. The first kind of opposition was kind of like, hey, compromise. We want to worship your God too. You know, in fact, we've been worshiping your God. So let's just do this together. But the Jewish people, the leaders, they knew that whatever the people there were doing, it wasn't what they were doing. And whoever they were worshiping, it wasn't God. 
And so they, they recognize that. And, and so they're not going to allow this first kind of opposition, which kind of sounds good. It's kind of what we hear in our society. Can't you guys all just get along? Yeah, okay, we'll let you believe in the Bible and we'll let you believe in truth, but can't you just go along with the rest of society? We're all getting along so well. Just read the news. You know, news is full of peaceful people loving each other, right? We're all getting along so well. Why don't you join us? Why do you got to be so, like, adamant about that Bible thing? As a matter of fact, you don't have to get rid of the whole Bible, just certain parts. The parts that kind of keep you from getting along with us. Well, there's the compromise. And then once that doesn't work, once the Jewish people say, no, we're going to worship God, we're going to worship him the way he says to be worshipped, we're going to follow the covenant the way that the covenant says to be followed, we're not going to piece it out, we're not going to customize it. Well, the next opposition was, we're going to threaten you. We're going to, we're going to get into the, um, you know, the public officials, those in leadership. Oh, we're not going to go to Cyrus, because Cyrus obviously supports you. But we don't have to go to Cyrus. You can just bribe the local officials. We can, we can make it really hard on you. You know, we can threaten you. We can even uh, do things to stop you, knowing that if we have the local officials in our pocket, they're not going to do anything. And so as we found out, building stops. But let me tell you something. The text doesn't tell us this. I'm not telling you I know one way or another why the text doesn't tell us this. But I want you to keep this in mind because we're going to contrast it to what we read today. The people didn't stop because God told them to stop. They stopped because of the opposition. Keep that in mind. They didn't stop because God told them to stop. They stopped because of the opposition. Again, I think these are things that I think should resonate with us. If we believe that we're following truth, if we believe we're being faithful to God's word, that we know we could face opposition. And sometimes that opposition can be threatening and scary and, you know, maybe someday threaten to even shut us down. But that doesn't mean God is saying, stop. And we find here there's, there seems to be like three groups that God does not want working on his temple. Now you might go like, wait, wait a minute, God is the God of grace. He's the God of love. He accepts everybody, right? It's true in a, in a certain situation. What this text is telling us is that God doesn't work. He doesn't want the adversaries. He doesn't want the adversaries to build his temple. He doesn't want the compromised and by compromised, I mean the people that we're going to see really soon that have just settled. They're like, okay, that temple thing, it's, you know, they, they threaten us about the temple thing, but you know what we'll do is we'll just not worry about the temple. We'll worry about getting our houses together. We'll, we'll, we'll start reestablishing our businesses and our, our economy. And there's the compromised and the settled, more focused on the things of this world than, than, than the things that God had laid out for them. And then there were the, the third group that was just afraid. They weren't compromised. They weren't settled. They weren't even trying to rationalize. They were just afraid. Government threatened. They backed off. They were afraid. You know, somebody in their workplace challenged them. They backed off. God's saying, I can't, can't build the temple with these people. 
Now, God could build the temple with these people. Remember, God can do anything. But he's saying, these people are not going to build the temple. It kind of reminds us of the story of the Exodus. Remember, it's an incredible story of these people that do this incredible thing where they, they, they're under, they're slaves, and they're, they're slaves to the most you know, powerful kingdom of that time. And they not only like miraculously escape, you know, because of what God does for them, they, they get all the way across the wilderness and they get to the Jordan River, but then they're too afraid to go in. And God's like, I can't establish my people with people who are too afraid to face giants. Well, that's where we are today in, this, in, the, in the text. Before we go into the text today, you know, I, um, you know, I was trying to think about il illustrations to kind of help us get in the frame of mind. Um, one of them is like, for me, like at a, at, you know, when we think about the early explorers, the early explorers who, who first crossed the ocean. This is, I think, looks like the Hokulea. And whether it was the Polynesians or whether it was, you know, uh, you know others from Europe, China, other places, that, that when, they, when they went out across the ocean, you know, it didn't take days. It didn't even take weeks. It took months. And at times they would find themselves where there were no signs. Oh, at night, a lot of these people could navigate by the stars. Maybe they could read the tides. You know, we know like the you know, Polynesians could would actually see, you know, see even the birds and realize birds aren't stupid. They're not just going to fly to nothing, right? They're flying somewhere where they're going to land. But there were also times during the day the sea is totally calm. There's no wind. There's nothing telling, telling anyone where to go. What do you do then? And we read about these, you know, that when, when, we, when we get journals of these explorers and they're, they're, they're sitting in the middle of these, in these situations. What do you do? Well, we know the ones that we read about because they actually made it. They just, they knew the direction. They kept going, even though there was no evidence they were going in the right direction. And this could take a long time. And of course, there's probably others we don't know about because they got lost and died. Um, but I, I wonder, like, do, do we have the patience to do things like these? like this. You know, we look at, you know, the next exploration, which is space. And just to get to Mars with our current technology, it takes years. It just seems like, are, are we willing to, to take that time? It seems like such a long time. Especially a long time when you may not be getting any feedback that you're going in the right direction. Oh, we have smaller examples. My family knew, knows that I have, a, I have a time limit. If we just drop into a restaurant and ask how long the wait is, my time limit's about 20 minutes. I have a theory. No food is so good that it's worth waiting more than 20 minutes for. So I'd rather go somewhere else than wait more than 20 minutes. Sometimes I'll stretch it to 30. But, you know, time has this, it's kind of relative. How long is too long? How long can we, can we wait without getting any kind of feedback? Remember this story of Ezra and Nehemiah. 70 years pass, they come back, they start the temple, they get the foundation, 
And now almost two more decades will pass. It would have been so easy at this point to lose faith. For two decades, almost two decades, they're going to keep walking by that foundation they started. They're going to keep walking by this, these walls in this city that are still in piles of rubble. They're going to keep going past this again and again. And if they were like a lot of us, they would have given up because many people, they only believe what's real, what's really real is what's affecting them right now. That's all that really matters. Thinking about what might affect me in the future or what might be affecting me in small ways but, but not in any way that I have to deal with right now, it's not really real. And if you, if you live like that, if you think like that, and by the way, more and more people think like this, that what is really real is what's happening right at this moment. If that's how you are, it can be really easy to get, get into this stage of life where you feel like God hasn't spoken to you in a while. He hasn't given you any signs. He's not giving you any landmarks. He's not giving you any direction. Oh, he told you what to do, you know, last month, last year, last decade. But you haven't heard from him in a while. And it's easy to start to believe that what I'm experiencing now is all that there really is. Well, we know that some of the Jewish people felt exactly that way. Felt exactly that way. And again, for 20 years, they went by. Not just 20 years are passing. Life is happening. In those 20 years, of the 40-something thousand that came, some of them are dying. And they're not seeing any progress. Do, do you know what the average stay, the average time that a pastor stays at a church, in, in I'm talking evangelical churches, 18 months. Think about that. 18 months. Even football coaches, really bad football coaches, get like three years. You know, usually they say like, okay, you know, we're going to give this coach three years to, to rebuild. A lot of times the pastor is gone or the church is like, oh, there's no progress. It's been 18 months, for goodness sakes. And you think about it, if they're leaving in 18 months, that means the actual problem started a few months earlier. Think about that. This is like 18 years. But what's remarkable is it's the same leaders. When we read the story, we're going to see the same leaders. Let's look at this text. Verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, is he Japanese? No. Prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. Remember those guys? Same guys. We would have gotten rid of these leaders like, oh, it's been 20 years. All you got was a mound, you know? But no, they're still the leaders. Jeshua the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And you go like, how, how could you still have these same leaders after 18 years and seeing no progress on the temple, no progress on the walls? Well, again, this is something that's, again, how God works. We know that God can do supernatural things. We know if God had decided, he could have just said, didn't even have to say it, just think it, and boom, the temple's back, better than ever. 
He could have. He's God. But no, it's not what's happening. How does God usually work? Well, as if you've been here long enough, you know I say this. God usually works through his people. He doesn't usually do, you know, these supernatural miracle things for his people. He usually works through his people. And here what we're finding out in this situation is that the problem wasn't the leaders. The problem was the people. There was no one to lead. So God waits. God waits. And what are the leaders doing? What do you think they're doing in this time? Well, I have a feeling what they're doing is they're helping the people who will become ready to get ready. Maybe like in Exodus, a generation had to pass so the new generation could come in and really do what God had called them to do. Maybe that had to happen. Maybe some of those people who came back you know, needed to you know, have their faith strengthened. I don't know. I know God leaves the leaders as the leaders, but something had to have gone wrong. It wasn't just waiting to wait. But now, about 18 years later, after God waiting for whatever to transpire, for his plan to transpire, he speaks. And he speaks through these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And he's like, it's time. It's time. So the leaders and the prophets are now able to rally the people. Remember, if these people are exactly the same people 20 years earlier, why would, they, why would they rally? These either have to be different people, the next generation, or they have to be people that has taken 18 years for them now to say, I will no longer you know, live the way I was and, and have the kind of you know, lack of faith that I had. I'm ready. Well, in verse 3 it says, At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop, they did not stop them until their report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now, first of all, Tatanai is not a bad guy. The bad guys we read about in chapter 4. Tatanai is the governor. His main job is to keep peace. If there's a lot of problems in his area, he could be dead. His main job is stability, peace. And if he's doing it in the spirit of Cyrus, and now the king is Darius, if he's doing it in their spirit, he's not going to do it by, by knocking heads. That's not going to be his first thing. It's not, it's not this strong iron hand. No, he's, he's going to, you know, do different things and investigate and think about and, and then report. And so that's what he does. He's just, he's doing his job. But I want you to note the big difference. The big difference we see in verse 5, it says, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. They kept working. They kept working. No, this is... This could have been bad because we, we know that at this time when Darius becomes, when he becomes king, he has to like settle all these political disputes and, and there's, when the Persians were perceived to be weak, then there would be rebellions all over the empire. And Darius has spent two years putting out all those fires 
He spent two years uniting his, 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 you know, his leadership. And the last thing he needs to know is, oh, there's that, that group out there. And they're building their temple. And by the way, it's the same group that Nebuchadnezzar had to take down because they were fiercely independent. There was risk. He even says, give us your names. Then again, he's, he's not doing it to be, to be mean or spiteful. He's doing his job. He wants to make sure that like, right under his nose, there's not going to be this huge rebellion. But for the Jewish people, it's risky. It's risky. But there's going to be this time for the report to go to Darius and then for Darius to make whatever decision. Remember, Darius doesn't just sit around doing nothing. He's got a lot of things, you know, that keep a king busy. And then the answer is going to be returned. And in all that time, they're able to continue to work and to be faithful, even at risk. And that phrase, the eye of God was on the elders, is that idea that God was protecting them. God was providing for them this way. And this is different from 18, 20 years earlier. 18, 20 years earlier, opposition came. They stopped. At this point, ah, we're going to keep going. Well, we actually get, have here a copy of the letter, and I'm going to read it to us in its entirety, um, even though we're not going to interact with all of it, because I, I do want you to, to get a, an idea of, again, the things that I'm telling you about Tatanai and about the situation that, um, that the, the Jewish people were in. So in verse 6, it says, This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozanai, and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. They could have just said, and the letter said, but never mind. Um, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. They're not lying. This is exactly what's happening. Then he says, Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which was a great king, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Now, notice, this is what they're leading with. I have a feeling Tatanai is trying to be as faithful to what he was told as possible. And notice, they're not leading with... Um, Cyrus said we could do it. They're saying, no, we're not doing this because Cyrus said we can do it. We're doing this because God, God told us to do this. You know, one of the things that's come up during this pandemic, and one of the things that I think as Christians that we need to be really careful of, is when, is when we say the government is allowing us to worship. If you're waiting for the government to allow you to worship, okay, it's a problem. I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to the government. I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, take, you know, you know advice, direction. But if your worship is contingent upon governmental permission, there's a problem there. No. We worship because our God is worthy of worship. We worship because, because God, 
he empowers us, enables us to worship. In fact, he created us to worship. If we really understand what worship is, then worship is, when we become believers in Christ, worship becomes like breathing. You cannot help but do it. It's who we are. And again, government is government. Society is society. I expect their language to be a certain way. But the church, we have to be careful about what we say. We have to be careful about what we give as our reasons for doing things. Again, I try not to open cans of worms because worms get all over the stage. So maybe this made people's brains go in different directions. But let me come back here and just say, like, look at where this started. This started with... We're the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we're re rebuilding his house. We're rebuilding, we're rebuilding this house, and a great king of Israel built this house. I think his Darius was first reading this. Remember, despite what you might see in plays and in movies, things were not read silently. Silent reading didn't really start becoming a common thing until about, you know, five, six, seven hundred years ago. This would have been read out loud. And you got to know that when this is being read out loud to Darius, he doesn't, like we do, when we read the Bible, we can see three or four lines down. He doesn't know what's coming. What he sees is there's a bunch of people down there that we conquered and we actually didn't conquer them. We let them go back after they had been conquered. They're still, you know, our vassals. And they're building a temple that their king built. What's the message? But then, it all kind of turns. It says in verse 12, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. What are they doing now? It's right now, Darius is getting a full dose of Jewish beliefs. He's saying, you know your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar? Because the Persians felt they were like a continuation of Babylon. So they didn't look at Nebuchadnezzar as a bad dude. They saw him as like, kind of like a forefather. And he goes, you know that guy Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, God allowed him. God allowed him to win. He allowed him. He was actually concerned about us, but we had rebelled. So he, he, allowed, he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to win. This is not common thinking in this day. In fact, it is rather exceptional, perhaps unique thinking. Because as we've said before, one of the ways you knew your gods were greater than the other gods is because you beat them in battle. And here are these, these people that had been defeated by the Babylonians and then were only back in their homeland because the Persians had allowed them to go back. And they're saying like, no, 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 no. That's what it looks like to you. To you, it looks like we got defeated. But actually, God was judging us. To you, it looks like out of Cyrus's great mercy, he allowed us to come back. I'm like, no, that was God's plan. I don't know how much of this Darius, like God, as he was hearing it, but it's pretty audacious. Well, it then continues. He says, However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that the house of God should be rebuilt. See, this is what, personally, if I was giving them advice, like, okay, when you talk to Tatanai and then you have him write down whatever is going to be said, 
Um, why don't you lead with Cyrus the king made a decree? That's your, that's your strongest card. Play it right up front. You might make, you know, with that first statement, you might make Darius so angry, he thinks you're trying to reconnect with your kings of the past and that you're trying to reestablish a monarchy. With your second statement, he might just think you're idiots, you're foolish. Really? You know, you think your God is so great when, when you know, we beat the guy that beat you? But they get to this third point, and it's like, Cyrus the king, he made the decree. And what's more, it says, and the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So remember, Darius is king. He has total power, total sovereignty. He's He's just reestablished order. He's just put down all of these rebellions. He's just kind of secured the, the palace. And then he hears about this. Darius can do whatever he wants. And you got to know that if he goes back to the Babylonian records, he not only can see, I mean, if he goes back to the archives, he can not only see what Cyrus did, he can also see what Nebuchadnezzar did and why. He can also see, you know, any complaints that had been raised against the Jewish people. Records open again. But again, these, these leaders kept building. And there's this, this final thing, let the king... Send us his pleasure in this matter. So we find that years have passed. Years have passed. Things have changed. But the Jewish people don't necessarily know everything. They don't necessarily know what's taking place. Because they can't always see God's plan. I want to give you like three points that I think come from this that applied to them then at that time and applies to us today. And the first one is this. God always has a plan. God always has a plan. He's never making it up as he goes. We all do that. I'm not going to lie. When I first started teaching Greek at Southwestern Seminary, I had actually just gone there to work on my PhD. So I'd gone, I was working on my PhD from another school, but I had heard that there was a place where I could study there. So I would, and I, I remember their library from my master's day, so I knew it's a great place. So we moved in the area, and, and I would... Um, go and study at the seminary. Well, I got an offer to teach a, a summer school class, um, teach New Testament, so I taught the New Testament class. And then afterwards, the dean came up to me and said, hey, uh, our Greek teacher, he, I, never know what, I never know what happened to him. I was just told he was no longer there, so uh, I'm not sure. But he wasn't there, and I didn't press it. And he goes, do you teach Greek? 
when you don't have a job <laughs> and you have a family of, you know, five of us total, the only appropriate answer was, yes, I do teach Greek. But in fact, I had not taught Greek ever, and I hadn't really touched my Greek since I graduated from um, seminary in like 2000, and we're now in 2006. And so I was, I was one of those guys who, you know, I, my goal was to go start reviewing, and my minimum goal was stay a week ahead of the class. That was the main thing. If I can stay a week ahead of the class, I'm good. And, you know, I, I kept teaching, and I got through that first semester. I got through that first year. And then the next year was so different because I had a plan. I was no longer just trying to stay ahead of the students. I had a plan. God always has a plan. He's never caught off guard. He's never in situations he's, he doesn't know what to do. He always has a plan. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. He's talking about Jesus. Paul's writing, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We don't have all the details of God's plan, but what we see is God has a plan. And if we were to back up a little bit into the same passage, he would talk about how this plan was made before the foundations of the world. And what is his plan? Well, it, he hints at it. He talks about the mystery, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And in Ephesians what is the mystery of his will? The mystery of his will is that, is, that, is that through Jesus Christ, all people will be united. There's no longer a wall between Jew and Gentile. There's no wall between male and female, rich and poor. That's the mystery of his will. God has a plan. He's establishing a kingdom, and this kingdom will be made up of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. He has a plan. It even uses that phrase, for the fullness of time. We read something similar in, uh, later on, and um, actually not later on, we read it in Romans where Paul writes in chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Whenever you look back, however long, you know, is it the year, you know, 33 or 30 or whatever it is, you know, we have trouble keeping track of time. God doesn't. When Jesus hung on the cross, that was the right time. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, that was the right time. And it was the right time because God has a plan. He always has a plan. The Jewish people, they... I'm sure some of them are discouraged. Think about it. Year after year after year, you're seeing no progress. In fact, it seems like it's getting less progress as people are becoming more absorbed into their daily lives. No progress. But there's, there's those who are faithful who says, who believe God has a plan. The second point is this. We often cannot see his plan. God always has a plan. We often cannot see the plan. We can see some things, okay? We can see some things, 
God reveals to us a lot in Scripture. But we don't always know how it all connects. You know, we, people like to quote the Scripture that, you know, that God you know, works all things together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't mean you actually know it's happening as it's happening. You don't know that, that what you're going through is actually for your good while you're going through it. You don't know that what we're going through is for, is part, how it's part of God's plan, overall plan, while we're going through it. We don't always know. That's what Paul again writes in Romans 8. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know, some people think like, oh, we don't know what to pray because, um, because we're overwhelmed with grief or something like that. Well, that's, that could be part of it. That could be part of it. But if we read on, it says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Oh, it could very well be, not just we're overwhelmed with grief, but that our brains aren't big enough. We can't process it. See, he ends by saying, and we know that for those who love God, God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But remember, everything he's just said is sometimes you need the Spirit to, to communicate things that you cannot communicate because your brain can't handle it. I think of the most terrible Indiana Jones, which was the fourth one. Um, if, if you remember that one, you know, it has the crystal skull and you've supposedly if you put on this skull, you could bring in all knowledge and finally like the, 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 one of the bad guys puts the skull on. And suddenly she's getting all this knowledge from these aliens, but her brain cannot handle it. You see, we can know something. We can know important things, but we cannot know everything. If it's an infinite plan made by an infinite God who considers all that exists, all that has ever existed, and all that ever will exist, what makes you think you can understand it? I don't think I can understand it. If he's taken into account every variable, every possibility, and he knows them all. What makes me think I can understand it? And so what happens sometimes is what seems like good for today could be terrible for tomorrow and vice versa. In fact, here's what I believe. I believe that if you or I knew the impact of every decision we made, even the smallest ones, even whether to turn left or to turn right, if you knew the impact and how that affected everything else around you, most of us wouldn't do anything. We'd be afraid to move because we knew we would know the potential impact it could have on us, our family, our career, our world. Thank God we cannot see what God can see. That's why Proverbs 55, verses 8 through 11 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth, forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We, we treat these as two separate parts. We shouldn't. This, this part where it says, my word goes out, he's saying, my word goes out, but remember, my ways are higher than your ways. 
You're not always going to see the direct effect of my word going out. Proclaim it anyways. Live it anyways. Share it anyways. My word goes out. I've chosen you to be the proclaimers of my word. Don't worry about seeing the immediate effect of it. Be faithful. Live faithful. It's my purpose. See, it's not just that God thinks differently than us. He's infinite. He's higher. The last point is this. He says, and it's just, we need to know all we can about God when he is close so that we know he is there when it feels like he's not. You know, all these other things are talking about us being faithful, but this is talking about you knowing the faithfulness of God. The songs we sang before talked about that. We've been reminded again and again, of that. The people of Israel, their very festivals were about reminding them of how faithful God had been. And this means you need to know Him. You need to know Him. You need to know His Word. You need to live His Word. How can you trust His Word if you do not live it? It carries us through those times, those times when it seems like we're surrounded by a horizon and there's no landmarks and it doesn't we don't know where to go next all we know is in the midst of that ocean we will be faithful to the god who is faithful but you got to know that you got to know that and that comes from knowing him knowing his word You see, when we look back at the people of Israel, the Jewish people here during the exile, we, we can see God has a plan and he's waiting for the right moment. But he's not just waiting for the right moment. He's waiting for the right people. And those people could have been the people that came, but they weren't ready yet. But it could have been that there needed to be new people. And that's my question to us, my challenge to myself and to all of us. Are we the generation that God is waiting to die so that the faithful can come in and do the work that he said we should do? Are we the ones that God is trying to change so that when he's ready, when, when we're ready, he's like, now is the time? Are we part of the ones who are actually the adversaries or the compromised or the settled or the afraid? Or are we that generation? Are we those people that God has brought to this moment for this time to do his great work?